0: How can I make money in the music business?
1: Why copyright? Should I make a CD anymore? Trying to break into the music and entertainment biz? Wondering how the business works? Wondering how guys like Elton John and MC Hammer go bankrupt? Why am I not making any cash? Tune in to WP Brave New Radio every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock. Hang with the university's music business faculty
2: hosts, me, Steve Marconi. And me, Dave Phil. Plus, we'll have industry guests and students from the music management program. How do I get gigs down at the shore? Call in with your questions and hear the latest in industry happenings. How do I get my music on iTunes? How do I get on a tour? (laughs) It's Music Biz 101 and more every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Only on WP Brave New Radio. Your secretary's got our checks, right? Mine's direct deposit, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Here we are. Music Biz 101 and more. The only radio show in the United States that focuses on the business side of the music and entertainment world. I am your professor, Dave Phillip, along with your doctor. Steve Marconi. And we are here on the campus of William Patterson University, Brave New Radio, WPA 88.7 FM, the home of Braveology. Today we are going to be speaking with entertainment law attorney Carl Guthrie. Hello, Carl. Good to have you here. Hello, how are you? (laughs) Doing great. And we also have our special MBA guest, student guest, Ms. Megan Johnson. Hello, Megan.
3: Hello, everyone.
2: Before we begin, Dr. Marconi, why don't we get into briefly, we were just in Nashville over the weekend. Why were we in Nashville and what did we do? I rode bikes,
1: I took a hike, I ate barbecue, and I roomed with Professor Dave Phelps.
2: My ultimate dream came true. I got to sleep in a double bed right next to (laughs) my... clarify Yes, (laughs) right next to... We were there
1: for the Music and Entertainment Industry Educators Association Annual Faculty Summit. So we were there with 90, uh, we were among 93 faculty, and we had uh, various mm, semi-workshops and various sessions concerning the industry, and I think it's centered this year, correct me if I'm wrong, but basically on the entire idea of streaming and the revenue stream of streaming, if that's... Not to get confused. Here. <laughs> yes, a lot of crossing. But how streams. much money does a stream represent for an artist, for a record company, for a publisher, for a songwriter, so on and so forth? And we had some dif- differentiation between a Pandora, which is a radio, versus a Spotify, versus whatever else we were talking Sirius about XM, at the time. For example, correct. yes,
2: yeah, yeah. It was it was very interesting because there was a lot of discussion about. Also, the copyright law as it pertains to streaming and uh, ownership of songs and how much an artist uh, <clears throat> receives in publishing if they were pre, not a pre-1996 song, if it's a music download versus post-1996. A lot of really what I guess you would call inside baseball, really sort of deep, wonky music business stuff. But uh, we seem to get quite a bit out of it. And it appeared that the things we were teaching in class are actually true. Yes.
1: God. Coincidental, <laughs> Yeah,
2: that, but that, that, it was good to know that uh, we do not lie when we s- teach our students. And one of our students, who is on Dr. Marconi's right, my left, uh, young Megan Johnson, MBA student. How are you tonight, Megan?
3: I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. How are you guys?
2: We're doing great. I, We're doing yes. great.
3: Uh, Professor That's Guthrie fine. just gave me a B in class, so I'm feeling pretty good.
2: All right. If I were your father, I'd say I'd feel a lot better if you had an A, but the B is (laughs) acceptable. I'll take it. (laughs) Right, right. So
1: Megan, you came to see me last year, and we talked about you entering the MBA program because you were just sort of uh, in a blah land with what you're doing. I
3: wanted to be everything from a chef to a social worker, so (laughs) I decided to do what I love.
1: Good. So uh, what's one positive aspect of the program since you've been here about eight months or so?
3: Um, I would say we ha- just being given the opportunity to meet and network so many different people in the business, mm-hmm. um, especially the, the credit, one credit class that we do the Tuesday nights, mm-hmm. um, meeting different people. The Pandora guy was great. Um, so that's really interesting, having being able to talk to them after and just kind of network.
1: Good.
2: Yeah, Megan brought up a great point about last night we had a music management seminar class and we had Doug McVeal, who is, uh, I, I believe he's a VP in charge of content for Vivo. And it was actually really interesting because we got to really understand the difference between Vivo and how Vivo videos get onto YouTube and how DIY musicians could get their content onto Vivo and um it was ac- it's actually uh, it was filmed and it will go on our website very soon and we should direct people to our website which is musicbiz101wp.com and while we're talking about musicbiz101s and wp's we want you all who are listening if you have questions for sir carl guthrie entertainment lawyer guru his uh, you should you can tweet us now at, at @musicbiz101wp or you could also give us a call 973 973- 720-2738. And before we get to, to Mr. Guthrie... I we might a, add,
1: too, that we have uh, Professor Guthrie's graduate class here tonight, and they are in the other room.
2: We should mention a few, few more things real quick before we get to Carl. First of all, we should give a shout-out to our producer who's sitting across from us, who is microphone-less today, Philip Gorahovsky. Good to have you here, Philip. Great. That was true crowd sound. And then we do have our engineer... Mr. Connor Morrison, who is in the room holding back the MBA students. Good to have you here, Carl. <laughs> and I just call him Carl, but his name is Connor. <laughs> <laughs> that, That's call. right. He's, yeah. his, his, That's live radio. That's that true. Now, a uh, couple upcoming shows. We should tell you who our guests are coming up. Doctor, who is Great. our guest next week?
1: Next week, we have George Dassinger, who's a PR guy, uh, did a long stint at Electra Records, has been on his own with a firm. His own firm for a good 10 years, 15 years now, and he's uh, he really knows the ins and outs of, uh, as they say in the PR business, turning chicken into chicken salad, what's the saying? A guy who can make chicken salad out of chicken, yes, he's very good <laughs> at that. So we're very, very excited to have um, George come in, and with his class. Yes. He'll have his undergraduate class here.
2: Just like what we're doing this week, only a different man. And then April 9th, which is two weeks from now, we're actually going to have a different kind of show. Dr. Marconi will be away that particular show. So right. <laughs> um, my, my boy Philip and myself will be manning the, the, the microphones. And we're going to have a special show about a concert that will be going on here at w, uh, William Patterson University on April 26th. The show is called Collage, and it is basically the best of the best of William Patterson and the music department. We're mm-hmm. going to have some performances. We're going to have some faculty. We're going to actually have a, a discussion about how do you promote an event. And the, the twist is this event that we're promoting, we're also, uh, and, and the backstory of how we promote the event, at the same time, we'll be promoting the event. So, two birds, one stone. Good, good. Yes. So, that's, those are the things we have for the next two weeks. And then uh, Kenny Laguna is coming next Tuesday night.
1: That's right, to the Martini Room in the Calm Building, one floor down from where we are now. And Kenny Laguna is, uh, well, he's been a manager and a producer for many years in this industry. Uh, Big, I guess the biggest uh, stint was with Joan Jett uh, when she was very, very popular. And Kenny, not only very uh, astute, but extremely interesting. He has many, 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 many uh, stories to tell about this business.
2: And I did some reading about him. He has been either played or produced or written over 50 top 100 hits mm. since the 1960s. He he was involved with Tommy James for a while yeah, yes. as well. So uh, Megan Johnson, MBA student galore over there.
3: I'm still here. Uh, good
2: to have you. Have you heard of Joan Jett?
3: Of course.
2: Can you name two songs by the no. Joan Jett? And the, can you name one song?
3: Oh. um... No. Da-na. No, if you give me da-na. a hint, baby. I'm giving you a hint. Oh, is that? Da-na. That's da-na. pretty awful.
2: Put another dime in the jukebox, baby. I love...
3: Rock and roll. There I we got go. there I got it. I even go. kind of sung well, it there. So We are
2: actually... Carl Guthrie, on my right, your left, is actually going to sign you to a record deal based upon those three words, rock and roll, that you just did, because you have a great voice, really great voice. <laughs> so, Dr. McCartney, why don't we get into... Our good friend, Carl Guthrie. Carl, please say hello one more time. It's good to have you. Hello to all out there. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here, of course. It's a pleasure to have so you. Carl
1: and I have been in this program... When did you come in? Very early? Let's just in say the 80s? late 80s. Yeah. Yes. So Carl has been... The part of the 80s, yeah. He's been our attorney uh, teaching uh, law and ethics in the music business. You also have a another career as a professor at Seton Hall Law. Yes. That... Um, He does. And why don't you just uh, tell everybody sort of how you got into it before what you do?
0: Well, interestingly, I started out uh, as a college student at Brown University. And at that time, I was also involved in music as a pianist. And I played with various uh, artists, guest artists. And we had an artist in residency by the name of Robert Northern, who I got to record with. And he brought a very famous jazz uh, drummer Max Roach, uh, Mm -hmm. to our ensemble, and we did shows and performed with him and an artist by the name of Gene Karn. So it was was a very productive period for me uh, as a a creative uh, person in the business. Mm -hmm. Um, As time went on, it was time to leave undergraduate school and think about going to law school. And uh, I also had an opportunity to go on a world tour at that point and ultimately, I opted to go to law school, but only uh, w- with the understanding that I would continue to play keyboards and also uh, focus on entertainment law right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Of course, you can't do that in law school. You have to start off taking your core courses, contracts, torts, property law, and so forth. But uh, I was up to, up to the challenge, and it was, it was interesting, challenging and uh, time very, very time-consuming, uh but enjoyable nevertheless, and I actually saw parallels between the music. I would tell people like the uh the 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 facts in various legal cases were like the melody in a song, and yeah. the law was like the harmonic structure underneath
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> uh and once you understood the facts and the law, you could improvise comfortably <laughs> as judges do mm-hmm. quite a bit in their decision writing and making mm-hmm. uh, so uh yeah there was there was uh, a way to to bridge that gap in my mind at least and uh I continued performing as well. I would perform with a group we'd go to colleges and perform in different places. sometimes I get picked up from the law school and I'd carry my books, have them in tow backstage before performances and uh it was an enjoyable experience mm-hmm. but as the as the uh first year and I moved further into the, the my law school career, started to take courses that were geared towards entertainment law, in particular the inter- intellectual property courses, uh, copyright, of course, and trademarks, and so forth. We didn't have an inter- uh, entertainment law course at that time. So it was interesting for me, after I got out of school and took various uh, courses at the new school, studying under uh, entertainment lawyers, and also through uh, Practicing Law Institute in New York City. They had uh, wonderful seminars with uh, some of the most prominent entertainment lawyers in the business. And uh, after doing that for a while and starting to uh, write things myself, in particular, uh, I wrote an article dealing with the New Copyright Act. It was new at that time, 1978. Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, as it turns out, I started getting calls from a friend at Seton Hall Law School to come and both do a seminar at the school and help uh, the law school develop its entertainment law program. And so I did that and pretty much coincided with uh, Dr. Marconi asking me to come to William Patterson and also teach the entertainment law and law and ethics course there. And uh, so they've both been going on parallel tracks for better than 25 years.
1: Great. So who have you represented in the... uh... In your pedigree here,
0: well, it's been it's been quite a journey. Yeah. Uh, at one point, I was I was considered the hip hop lawyer. <laughs> uh, yeah. Starting out with uh, working with Russell Simmons when he was launching Def Jam with uh, Le- R. Cohen running the management end, uh Rush Management at the time, and uh, we signed an act known as Houdini back then mm-hmm. uh, to a company called Jive Records. I've called his company, and um, and so it went. Uh, we started working with uh, a number of other artists, and one, one of the groups uh, I got a call from out of Brooklyn was a group called Full Force, and um, we used to meet once every other week and talk about the industry and how they could best break in, and they started auditioning other acts because they felt that the best way to break in would be uh, producing and writing, so they made their mark as producers and writers first and then as artists. And uh, both of the first acts that they produced um, became hit artists and they had uh, great careers. One group was called um, UTFO. They had a big mm-hmm. song called Roxanne, Roxanne, which yeah. which started the whole Roxanne craze. Mm-hmm. And uh, also Lisa Lisa and Colt Jam.
1: Mm.
0: remember Lisa did her first audition. We all said Lisa had the eye of the tiger right from the beginning and often in the business we talk about seeing someone for the first time and detecting star quality and uh she had it, it was mm-hmm. uh it was a nice thing to see and um so it went and as time went on i started working with more and more people on the other side of the fence my sister gwen guthrie was already in the business as well and she did a lot of work with roberta flack and she was writing for her and roberta would always say gwen i like your songs let me see some some of those songs. Maybe I could put them on my album. She would always have two or three of Gwen's songs on her albums. And eventually, uh, my sister did a, a world tour with Roberta. And in, during the tour, Gwen would do one of her songs to break up Roberta's show. And she'd do a song called This Time I'll Be Sweeter, which has been recorded by a number of people, including Roberta and, uh, and others. But I think the person who made that song most... Um, Popular was uh Angela Bofield
1: hmm. yeah.
0: You know, and uh so as as it went on, um Roberta said, "Gwen, we have to stop this uh routine of having you do your number in the middle of my show because you're killing my show. <laughs> you know you're bringing the house down it's too much, <laughs> but when we get back to New York, I'm gonna finance your first album. We're going straight over to Columbia and uh get you signed up as a solo artist." Is you do not need to be performing behind anyone.
1: <laughs> ah, that's great.
0: And so, and so it went. We had a wonderful time. Uh, at that point, one of the big studios that was um, well-known and used heavily uh, was the Hit Factory. So she did a lot of recordings there. My, that was where my sister did her first album. And uh, we used to have wonderful times in those studios. Um, unfortunately, we, we've moved past that point. And so... Um, The studio business has changed. Most people do what they call their own tracking on their own with their software and so forth. And that kind of brings us right up to where we are now. Mm -hmm. But it was a good, it was a good, good development period for me. And I started to work with one of the most prominent entertainment lawyers at the time who wrote a book that we all called the Bible. His name was Bill Krasilowski and Mm -hmm. Bill and myself worked on deals uh, in tandem And sometimes Bill would send me around the country to uh, give uh, speeches when he couldn't and help sell his book, Mm -hmm. This Business of Music. And it was just amazing to see the audiences expecting Bill and getting Carl. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, at first they were quite apprehensive until um, I I did a very good job for them (laughs) and uh, laid bare the... The intricacies of the entertainment industry, in particular the legal side of it, and uh, it all worked out. So is, he, is, he still,
2: is he still alive?
0: Bill is alive. Yeah. Uh, Bill has just recently retired, about a year now into retirement. Mm-hmm. And I get calls from him asking, Carl, would you like to take one of my clients here that uh, I can no longer service? Hmm. <laughs> so I've, well, helped, I've helped him with some, some matters. Yes. What well, was
1: interesting, the last time I was in contact with him, and we were on a first-name basis, too, was that he was telling me he was cutting out the cut-in. Yes. So I'd go to his office and he'd have all of Chuck Berry. He had all of Fats Waller. He had a lot of Duke, uh, their catalogs. Yes. And he was finding the guys that, you know, put their name on it because these guys didn't know. And he was making deals for the estate. Yes. Uh, And he was cutting out a lot of these guys that shouldn't have been in, you know, in the deals. You know, the biggest thing we hear is over that Maybelline story with Alan Freed and so on, but there were thousands and thousands and we won't even go into morris levy oh yes
0: well bill worked on a lot of estates and uh sometimes he literally shamed those on the other side of the, the table into making a a better more equitable deal with the uh the estate because mm-hmm. some of the deals were just horrible and in some cases publishing was lost when it shouldn't have been and so he he did a lot of good in that in that respect in terms of uh uh, bringing a sense of uh, balance and a more equitable arrangement uh, for the families of the, some mm-hmm. of the, the very prominent estates.
1: You speak, you know, you think of Duke Ellington, one of the greatest American compo- composers of all time, and you would think, well, he had his copyrights together and so on. Yes. Well, when I was in his office one time and he had those old blue and white big IBM sheets of printed from a computer... You know, and Duke's has thousands of songs. And there would be uh, almost 70% of them were without copy, were never filed. Mm. Never filed. And he was trying to get all that done. And there was another guy that worked for, um, dating myself, another guy that worked for Music Minus One. Yes. And one time he handed me an entire, I was was a kid, I was just out of college, handed me an entire Duke double album. That had already been released and was out. Nice. And He said, "Here, do do the transcriptions, do the copyrights on this. I got to get them." And you would just—you would never think it would be Duke Ellington, you know. Sure. I mean, you know, somebody small. Taken
2: care of. <laughs>
1: amazing, just amazing, the way this business didn't work.
2: <laughs> well, you—you you had mentioned how you were working with Rush Communications and we're in the yes. earlier days of hip hop, yes. uh, early '80s, basically. Yeah, that's when right.
0: You, were there... yeah, early to uh, mid '80s. Yes. Because because I read. Up
2: recently read uh, Dan Dan Charnas it's Dan right Dan Charnas' book about hip hop uh, what was it called do you recall Uh, I don't know he wrote basically this very overwhelmingly awesome history of hip hop and he talked about Spe- specifically Russell Simmons and yes. the early Russell Simmons contracts with the artists that he had, in which Simmons was trying to get publishing, trying to get the, you know, basically saying, I will sign you, but I have to get the publishing yes. as well. Um, at what point did you start seeing, uh, or has it, is it still going on today, those contracts changing where it is more equitable, and you're, you're finding that artists, especially in the hip-hop world, are getting better deals and they're not getting screwed the way Russell Simmons was doing it to those guys back then?
0: Well, I'm not prepared to say uh, anyone was screwing anyone on either side <laughs> of the fence. So let me put that disclaimer out right now. Uh, however, the, some of the deals were uh, across the board in the industry, not artist friendly or writer friendly. Put it that way. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in, in, in fact, it's not a it's not a secret to know that, uh, or to hear that artists and writers are basically considered pawns mm-hmm. in the business. And so the deals were far less equitable than than deals that you find now. Um, I think the industry has grown up some. There have been external pressure brought to bear even from Congress. for example, um this is something that many uh even entertainment lawyers and, and artists and others aren't aware of that uh for speaking of a cut in years ago um artists who also wrote and signed a deal with the company, uh, they initially were able to get 100% of their mechanical royalties. And as the industry started to suffer a setback and a downturn, uh, the company started to introduce a profit-saving measure uh, called the three-quarter rate on control compositions. And all of a sudden, overnight, no matter where you went, whether it was Warner Brothers, Sony, Universal... The contracts, particularly for new artists, said uh, we'll give you an, a record deal if you accede uh, to and agree to a three-quarter rate on your mechanicals.
2: Can you explain, just for those who, who don't no. understand the term, like mechanical or three-quarter rate? Sure. You...
0: Me- mechanical royalty is uh, a royalty that's paid by record companies for the right to embody a, uh, a song on a recording, an audio recording, and... Uh, was called a mechanical royalty because years ago it was done literally. Uh, there was a mechanical process of uh, of bringing the two together, and um, now of course it's a little different. But nevertheless, the term has remained mechanical royalty for the the combination or the the embodying of music, musical composition, particularly copyrighted musical compositions, uh, with an audio recording. So an artist does a recording. Whoever wrote the song. Uh, and owns the copyright, the copyright claimant is entitled to what we call mechanical royalty, which is set by Congress. And uh, for many years, in many decades, that mechanical royalty amounted to roughly two cents to two and three-quarters cents, all the way up through the, the late 70s. And then it started to escalate up with the new copyright law. Uh, that went into effect January 1st, 1978, but was passed in 76. And so from that point on, January 78 uh, forward, we started seeing that two and three quarter rate uh, escalate up three, four, five, five and a quarter, five and three quarters and so forth, six, six and two quarters to the point that it's at now, which is 9.1 uh, cents for each, each um that, and that's, by the way, the minimum rate for each song under five minutes. Yes, under five minutes, and uh, each copyrighted song which is embodied on a uh, um, audio recording. Now we've 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 also found out that uh, this three quarter rate. The lawyers, entertainment lawyers, felt that this probably wasn't a, a an appropriate thing for record companies to do, and we always felt that they would finally be an antitrust case brought against all the record labels. And the record labels were very concerned about that. So much so that usually when you went in to renegotiate your deal, if you said, I want a full rate, they'd accede to it. Mm-hmm. Okay, and um, But with the new artists, they tried to push the three-quarter rate. And the three-quarter rate is still out there today. And without mentioning any companies in particular, um, there is an awareness that Congress finally Passed legislation which did away with the three-quarter rate for artists who are writers, so that these mm. artists are now entitled to a full rate, and it's an override, so that even if the contract says you're entitled to three-quarter, you're entitled to a full rate mm. under the new the the, the, the new law. And um, I did not know that. I spoke with some I spoke with some uh, attorneys at major labels, and I said. Why aren't you guys changing your your contracts to reflect the new law? They said, "Well, if if they know to ask us, counsel for the artist, we'll accede to the request. Otherwise, we'll live with the three quarter rate until you know that that that's raised." So, and when
2: did that law pass?
0: Uh, we're going back actually uh, in the in the early nineties. Okay. So what
2: if so so? But,
0: but not with respect to. Um, Recordings before that point. So, you know. so
2: do some artist contracts yes. from um, state with with the record company. The record company will say, for a ten song album, we are going to budget say uh, sixty eight cents for, yes. for, for for mechanical okay. royalties. Now, you're stating that uh, if if the if the artist is also the songwriter, they're getting the statutory rate, which is nine point one nine point one yes. cents one per song. So, in essence, if the uh, artist writes all 10 songs, they're getting 91 cents Correct. for that. So the label is basically, as long as their attorney they know to ask knows to ask and say the law states it's that amazing. I can do this. Is there,
1: yeah. Are they still writing uh, ceilings? Yeah, they call a a them cable? aggregate
0: caps. Yes. Yeah, but once again, the caps shouldn't be in place. Right. <laughs> uh, since the federal law has changed it, right. you, they're entitled to a full rate for each song. Uh-huh.
2: The textbooks do not bring this law up, Dr. Marconi. No. This is
0: Cashman great. This is the best. This is great. Yeah. There are two things that are really well-kept secrets uh, <laughs> at this point. One is um, that three-quarter rate having gone to a full rate for artists slash writers. And the other is the copyright termination law, mm-hmm. which went into effect finally um, in 2013. Right. And when the law was passed, once again back in January uh, there 78, there was a feeling that this would be a fairly revolutionary sort of occurrence, giving writers the opportunity to cancel out deals under which they transferred their rights and recover all those rights, recapture them, uh, in spite of contracts that gave publishers and others, licensees, the right to use their music. So when the law went into effect, though, they said, we're not going to let this law uh, become effective until 35 years from now. Yes. And that sounded like a long time away, <laughs> so we don't have to worry about that. Publishers will continue to uh, to have the right to to license and own and exploit musical compositions for another 35 years before they have to worry about this, this specter of the copyright termination. And uh, lo and behold, 2013 came, <laughs> 35 years later. And there it is. All the major artists slash writers Uh, throughout the industry through their attorneys knew to put in their petition to have the copyrights canceled and to recover their catalogs Mm -hmm. of songs. However, there's a large number of artists slash writers and writers, songwriters who have no clue about this. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, if they don't find out within the next five years, they're going to lose the right.
3: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, So it's like a window opening and then closing. So the New York Times wrote an article and went around the industry and asked the executives at different companies, what do you think about this copyright termination um, law going into effect now? And the executive's response was, no comment. We <laughs> want <laughs> going to keep this thing very quiet. <laughs> Let it it's, pass. Let the no. five years go by. And we hold the rights.
1: Carl touches on yes. <clears throat> something else, too, twice now in the last 10 minutes, and that is, that uh, you may have your girlfriend's brother friend graduating law school, and he wants to get into the music business and uh, knows the law, you know, passed the bar and so on, but cannot swim with the barracudas, which is really what we're saying here is if you're not up to date on all the industry ins and outs that uh, someone who's involved with real estate or involved with auto crashes or whatever won't have a chance in the, in the business, uh, to represent you as well as you should be represented.
0: Yes. It's a very specialized area. And those of us who are in it have to constantly, uh, research and stay abreast of the latest developments, which are occurring very quickly right before our eyes. A lot of times, particularly Mm -hmm. in this state of flux that the industry is in. And, um, To get the best representation, you need someone that does this on a regular basis and is on the cutting edge.
1: So if you, if anyone out there cares actually to email Professor Guthrie? Yes. Well, you can do that at klawpro at gmail.com. That's klawpro at gmail.com.
2: Meanwhile, right now, you are listening to Brave New Radio, about 33 minutes after the hour. This is 88.7 FM. You can stream us live as well. Go to musicbiz101wp.com, and we—that that is our website. And right there, we tell you how to stream the show live. We uh, have Dr. Steve Marconi. We have Carl Guthrie. We have the wonderfully astute Megan Johnson over there on the other side of the studio. We're taking questions. You can call us, 973-720-720. 2738. Tweet us at MusicBiz101WP. Uh, Carl, may I ask you a question that came via tweets? Oh, sure. Alright, uh, this actually comes from somebody about four feet away from you, separated by glass sure. and wall and stuff, Mr. Alan Rogazin. Yes. His question, question is, what are the most dangerous things to agree to in a contract, be it with management, record label, agency, or publishing? Uh, do we have about five hours? <laughs> <laughs> you have about
0: two and a half minutes uh well artists have to be very concerned about particularly these days uh the the term these contracts are very often are long-term affairs mm-hmm. uh artists and writers and creative types think that uh they can sign something and and uh if it doesn't work out six months from now they'll be out of it i've seen Writers get stuck in deals in the first period of a deal, and because they're not meeting the criteria that would allow them to get out of that first period and go to the next period and receive the next advance that's written in the contract, they're stuck in one in a, in a one contract period, virtually for the rest of their career. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've actually been brought in to, to help uh, resolve some situations like that where it was just terrible. Situation for the artist to be stuck in, or the writer, uh, long term deal, uh, no further advances due. Uh, They're not meeting their quota in terms of uh, writing or so forth because the quota is is written in a way that they don't understand it when they sign the deal. And they say, oh my goodness, I need to deliver uh, four or five whole songs. Each must be recorded and released on a major label um, before I can. Uh, get to my second period and they—they they turn, it turns out they're co-writers so every song they write is not what we call in publishing a whole song. It's a half song mm. at best. If they're a co-writer they may, may even be a 60-40 split and they're on the 40th side 40 uh, percent side so as a result they would have to, even if they were, were writing 50 percent of the songs, if they had a five song quota or minimum song commitment or writing commitment it would take it would take 10 songs to meet that commitment, mm-hmm. not five. So they might have written 10 songs, but now the 10 songs have to be recorded and released, perhaps by a major label. And if it says it, it might even have a, a, a quota there. And it has to sell at least 50,000 or 100,000 songs as reported by SoundScan. Mm-hmm. These hurdles and barriers are almost insurmountable. And the, the writers find out after they're in the deal, mm-hmm. they took the first advance. Now they're stuck. Um sometimes we're able to help out and uh one in one case uh a friend that I had met when Zomba Music was first starting up, who later went on to become the president of uh Universal Music, uh I told him about a situation like this and he said, Carl, we'll work it out. Uh call my business affairs guy and tell him what your concerns are and, and we'll we'll be honorable in this instance. Mm. And mm-hmm. this is the sort of thing also Bill Crossgloff used to do with the estates. So there's precedent for it, but it's, it's a rarity. Most writers and artists who sign bad deals end up living with them and dying with them. Mm-hmm. And it's an unfortunate consequence of not having the representation and not having the insight early on to do the right thing.
1: In, yeah. Actually, in class, uh, when we talk about new artists and I, and I say, you know, your position in terms of uh, power is very small. You have really nothing to offer. And the only thing I can suggest is to sign a contract as short as you possibly short. can if and they, negotiate the time because if it doesn't work out, you're out. Mm-hmm. If it does work out, they'll be happy to renegotiate you know. with you. If there's one thing
0: you can do, is shorten the term. You yeah. Know, whether it's a management deal, if it's a record deal, publishing deal, cut the term down. I remember doing a deal with... Uh, publishing company, and it was in a situation where it was fairly competitive. And I said, well, we won't do a five-year deal. We'll do an 18-month deal. And they wanted the deal very badly. And uh, they said, well, 18 months? We can't do that. <laughs> and uh, once they realized that that, was the, that would be the, the magic <laughs> uh, point to, to surmount, they finally exceeded. And the attorney on the other side said, Carl, I'll make this deal. If it doesn't work out, you have to agree to hire me.
2: (laughs) May I ask another question by tweet?
0: Please.
2: Another question by tweet is by student David Endian, who is a student in a survey of the music and entertainment industry class. His question is, uh, is it best to hire both a transaction attorney and litigation attorney uh, at the same time just to be safe? Let's say I'm, I'm a new artist and I'm signing my team and my manager says, uh, should we sign both with the transaction and litigation attorney um, just to have the litigation attorney in my back pocket should something come up and uh, I need that relationship in a pinch, such as a Justin Bieber uh, right. case where an artist beat somebody up or, or needed, was getting sued for maternity or paternity claim, that kind of thing. Is that a good thing to, to have?
0: That's an interesting question. It's not one that I would normally expect
2: from (laughs) a lay
0: person. (laughs) Uh, As it turns out, uh, that's that's getting a little ahead of uh, things, though. Normally you're going to start with transactional attorney just means, transactional means the person that does the contracts and does the work before any litigation is on the horizon. And usually that's good enough to start. That person typically will have a constellation of lawyers at their uh, friendly with and that they work with, one might include a litigator or several litigators. So if a matter gets to the point that it's going to require litigation or at least the advice of a litigator, um, well, then you, you take a meeting at that point. Mm-hmm. So usually the, the transactional attorney or the attorney that handles the contracts and the day-to-day work of the, the uh, talent, they will act as what we call general counsel. So they they oversee the overall legal uh, team and legal matters that come in and uh, have to be dealt with. And they will make a call and say, it's time to bring in a litigator. I've done that plenty of times. And then, so now you have a litigator and a transactional attorney working on a specific matter. Usually the transactional attorney will guide the litigator in the direction that uh, your, the desired direction and and, the, and let the litigator know the desired result, and then the litigator will uh, employ his or her skills to help bring that to, to uh, that about to get the a favorable mm-hmm. result. But it's 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 not necessary to have a a litigator and a transactional lawyer at the at the outset.
1: I have a question. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure it's a question for you. That many um, people out there think about. So I am an artist. I'm in a band. and The band is called um, The Great White Hope. And I'm playing all around New Jersey. And once in a while, I might get on the circuit and play downtown Manhattan, Arling's Grocery or someplace like that. And then, uh, lo and behold, a major record company puts out a record by a band called The Great White Hope. And I go, well, that's our name. And we've been using it continuously for the last seven or eight years. So they call up Professor Guthrie and ask him if they have any power in this case or any any leg to stand on. Or are they just going to fold to Warner or whomever the major yes. table is?
0: It's an amazing question. I had a case just like that. Oh, really? Um, an older group had been performing under name. I won't mention any names. To. Protect the uh, innocent. I made it up. I made that one uh, up. And they've been performing for years under that name. the The good thing is that they had the the uh, presence of mind and the enough legal insight to file a federal trademark mm. in the United States Patent and Trademark Office. And so their 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 trademark was in the office. That they they perform on weekends. They all had day jobs, and they had their their shows on the weekends. And lo and behold, a major label put out a record with an an artist with their name.
3: Mm.
0: And I thought that was pretty unusual because it looks like there had been no due diligence done. You know, at least check the trademark office and do your searches and see whether this name is good. Somehow that slipped through the cracks and an album was put out with the artist. They became very successful and uh, the the group that had been performing under the name for years, uh, came to me. And, uh, fortunately I had enough sway with the major label. And I knew the the players involved so that when they saw my cease and desist letter, <laughs> which was preceded by a, a call, a heads up call, uh, you're going to be getting something shortly. <laughs> it's not so nice. Right. And, uh, they immediately took it seriously. So once again, don't get a personal injury lawyer to do this Mm -hmm. because the the major label is going to look and say, this person is clueless Mm -hmm. and we're not even going to take it serious until we're presented with evidence and um, something that tells us that this is being handled properly and that we should, we should take it seriously. So that's the first thing. But I immediately uh, said that we're going to have to, File a lawsuit and bring in a litigator and uh, take action. They said, "Well, wait, wait, wait. Let's um, let's work this out. First of all, let's make sure. Let us do our due diligence now and make sure you have what you say you have." I said, "Sure, I'll send you the file, cop the, the trademark that's been filed, and uh, give you background information." And there was plenty of it. The group had posters, flyers for every show they did, and they were active in them because you you can have a trademark, but if you're not actively using it you can be deemed to have abandoned it. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not enough just to follow a trademark and then sit on your hands and not do shows for three years. After two years, there's a presumption of abandonment that's raised. Mm -hmm. So uh, it is important to stay active. And we produced the evidence, the uh, the flyers and the documentary proof that the group was active and uh, ultimately, and this is something that artists need to know when you get caught in a situation where you're, in, where you're, <clears throat> where you're violating someone's rights. The record company will look for identification from the artist and they'll, they'll take the artist's royalties and immediately freeze them. Mm. So if the artist was entitled to a half a million dollars, that half a million dollars fund gets frozen. The artist gets zero. They say, it's a claim. We mm. can't pay you. And ultimately, what the company did was they took the artist royalties and settled with us mm. on the claim. Mm-hmm. And everybody went away feeling good on my end, at least.
1: On your end, at least. Okay, so let me add to that. I happen, my name is Frank Sinatra, and I'm a singer. Can I use that name?
0: Well, once again, trademark law is concerned about. Ironically, trademark law is not so much concerned about protecting the person who owns the mark. Uh, It's concerned with protecting the public from Mm -hmm. fraud, from being misled, from being deceived and being confused, so that if you're using Frank Sinatra, what's the public going to think? They're going to think, well, this must be the Frank Sinatra. Mm -hmm. Let's go to the garden and see
1: him. (laughs) (laughs) That's the beer garden. It would not be Madison Square. The beer
0: garden. (laughs) You know, we just throw out the garden to just
1: kind of give it that right. cachet, well, let's say, you know. Well, <laughs> I mean, let's say, let's even use, let's say I am, my name's Axel Rose. Okay. You know, so it's not someone who's deceased. Well, trademark
0: law does have a, a provision that says if you're going to do that, and this happened once with someone whose name was Ed Sullivan, and uh, selling suits, clothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the court said, your name's not really Ed Su- Sullivan. It's Edward Wilhemus Sullivan. Uh, you want to use your name, use your full name, and put a disclaimer under it, not to be confused with the famous <laughs> right. Sullivan. Sullivan. Yeah. So the disclaimer can go a long way, and the disclaimer's got to be bold enough and prominent to uh, serve the purpose of alerting, once again, the public, so that the public's not deceived or
2: confused. Do, do we have a question from Studio A now from Mr. Connor Morrison okay. and the Entertainment Law Group? Take it away.
0: Assuming that you can uh, do some publications on yourself, what's the possibilities of uh, doing self-publications in terms of uh, taking baby steps? Uh, what's the best way to start it? And that would be something like simple like a, uh, a, a tuba solo for a piano, uh, an orchestra, or a, a tuba solo with orchestra uh, at the high school level. Nothing major, but just something simple. But you want to get it published, but you want to do it yourself as a self Publications. Well, you can start out first by taking the steps to protect your work. Uh, copy, have it copy, have your works copyrighted. Um, anything that's what we call a work of authorship that's original and uh, it's been created by you, you want to protect it immediately and get it under copyright. And by the way, the this so-called poor man's copyright is not uh, sufficient or even a recognizable substitute.
2: Explain what that is. So, uh. Poor man's
0: copyright is when someone takes a, a copy of a work that they created, puts it in an envelope or a package, goes to the post office, and mails it to themselves or their uncle or their aunt or their mom, and they say, don't open it. And as the years go by, they've got a drawer filled with uh, 50, 100 of these un- open envelopes with, uh, with a post date on them from the post office showing that the proof that's inside establishes the date that they created it. Well, as we discussed in class, that that so-called poor man's copyright is invalid for several reasons. One, the federal law says nothing will be recognized other than the federal registration certificate issued by the copyright office for the purpose of bringing in an infringement claim. So you cannot get into federal court with the poor man's cop with your envelopes, no matter how many mm-hmm. of them you have. Uh, the clerk's going to say, do you have your copyright certificate registration ticket? If you don't, basically you're precluded from bringing a claim and Not having it also will also cause you to lose significant rights with respect to damages and possible uh, recoveries. So you want to file a copyright with the Copyright Office as quickly as possible. The next thing is to publishing is tricky business. Those who actually publish and have works placed with legitimate publishers who get your works further used by others, whether it's other schools, or in this case, other schools, or bands, or what have you. Um, we used to call them song pluggers. They actually go out and find those that are interested in using, using your work, and they get them published. Well, we, we've also said that song pluggers basically you become dinosaurs. Uh, you don't see a lot of song plugging these days, so... Very often, one is left to their own means early on to get their works published. Um, you can. There's a book called The Songwriter's Market, which comes out every year, which lists all the different sources that you perhaps have your now published work or copyrighted work published through or presented to. And um, also, you, you want to set up a publishing company. So you can go to your city hall or rather your county, county um, clerk's office and file a certificate, what we call a DBA certificate, doing business as, and come up with a name. So it's John Doe doing business as a major, major music publishing group. And uh, now you've got a publishing company, you've got a copyrighted work, and you can, you can have that presented either through yourself or through your attorney or through your manager to others. And hopefully you get someone to bite and, so interested in it and it.
2: Good. We have another tweet question okay. for you. This comes from uh, at Jenny's I quoi. Okay. Right. Yeah. So uh, her Sounds name is unique enough. Yeah, it's, it's very unique. <laughs> yeah. She's she's French. Yes. Uh, but I will read the tweet to you in English. Okay. If a band gets their name from the title of another band's copyrighted song, is that considered infringement? Such as bad company, bad company, that kind of thing. Um, Is that considered infringement? I name my band after somebody else's song, and can the songwriter, original songwriter, sue me for doing that?
0: Another very interesting question. Well, copyright law confers no trademark rights. So uh, trademark is very utilitarian. You need to establish a mark uh, that's being used in what we call commerce, or interstate commerce, for the purpose of uh, being associated with and creating an identification with a product or service. So if it's just a song that someone uses a term that you like, and say, so I'm going to call my band that. Well, they're not. That term is that when it's in the song is not affiliated with any product or service. It's just part of a lyric. So you're 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 not in trouble. You won't get yourself in trouble at that point if no one else has the name. Now you've got to search the trademark office and. Um, make sure that no one has, no one else is using that mark. And that under trademark law, you are deemed to be under constructive notice. In other words, it's almost as if you don't know, you should have known. Every mark that's in the trademark office. So if you come up with something that's confusingly similar, you won't be heard to say in court at least, well, I didn't realize that. Someone else had that. And it's in the trademark office. So if you think you want to use it, it's okay that it's in a song, however, do do your trademark searches and now you can do those online by the way uh the united states Pat- uh Patent and Trademark Office has a website and uh you can go in there and do a basic search and see all the different similar names that are listed and uh that that's the initial screening. I would recommend that you have someone that's more experienced at at, uh, screening names or particular marks that you want to use to give you a better idea of whether it's safe or not. Some people think, I'll just change one word, I'll add two letters, I'll spell water with two R's, (laughs) or star with two R's, and that will change it sufficiently. But the trademark office says it's the dominant theme that they're looking at. And they're looking at uh, sight, sound, and meaning. Does it look the same, does it sound the same, does it mean the same thing? Start with two R's is not going to distinguish you from someone that's a trademark with one R. Mm-hmm. Okay,
1: there'll never be yeah. a band called the Beatles. B E T L E S. Never. Right.
2: Um, and by the way, Doctor Marconi, that is the second time that question has been asked ah. on this show. When we had E. Michael Harrington, intellectual yes. property expert, oh, is that right? the the same question was asked, mm-hmm. and the sa- same answer was given. Only so, you have a deeper, richer voice. You right? have a voice built for radio.
0: <laughs> a voice built for radio. That's well, right. thank you. I, that's right. I take that as a compliment. Well, just
2: like Steve and I have faces <laughs> for radio. So, yes, uh, we do. That's right. Is there anybody else in Studio A who has a question who'd like to get on the air? We have a few minutes left. Is there ever a situation where it's better to go to trial than uh, to reach a settlement outside of court?
0: Absolutely. Uh, we always say you like to see cases settle, and I would say 80 to 90% of cases do settle, and if they didn't, the courts would be uh, clogged to a point that was just uh, inoperable, so the court system wouldn't function if we didn't settle most of the cases, and most of them do settle. Uh, however, in some instances, during, along the, along the course of uh, leading towards the the, liti- the ultimate trial uh, in the litigation process, offers are made back and forth, and it's not uncommon to get offers which are. Are insufficient to make the plaintiff whole uh, for the the injury that's been caused and the damage that's been caused and and sometimes uh, you have to hold out and sometimes you go to trial and you might even get through a part of the trial and then a settlement comes up mm-hmm. maybe just before it goes to the jury they say you know what okay let's let's we'll, we'll double our offer and <laughs> let's call it a day mm-hmm. uh, so sometimes you have. And it's also important to show a willingness to go all the way. Because sometimes if it looks like, well, they're, they're just looking for what we call, lawyers call the nuisance value. If we say, let's offer twenty-five to $50,000 and see if they'll go away. We'll put nuisance value on the table. We're going to end up spending that anyway, so we'll offer that to you to just discontinue your claim. And uh, if you feel that you've got a claim that's worth $2 million, uh, you're not going to give ground at twenty-five to 50000 And this happens, unfortunately, often. And it may not be until you get all the way to trial or at the end of the trial that a settlement that is reasonable comes into being. So they might say, well, all right, the evidence is really looking bad. You guys are doing a great job in the middle of this trial. And uh, as it turns out, we're going to now up our offer from 50000 to $500,000. That would have never happened had you not gone through the process of litigation and entering into trial. So sometimes you do have to go all the way, and uh, you have to have that willingness to do that. And that's where you really want a strong litigator um, who who will stand up and and do a great job because that your your case is going to be handicapped all all along the way. You know, if it, does it look like we should settle? No, we're doing just fine. They haven't produced anything which convinces us we should put any more than a nuisance value on the table which is 25 to fifty thousand however once rulings are made and a summary judgment is made by the court saying yes there are issues in dispute and yes I'm going to allow this matter to go to trial uh, at that point it's okay let's let's put a hundred a hundred fifty thousand on the table then you're at trial and some damaging evidence is, is uh, introduced and the jury starting to look like they're being swayed towards you, and they say, okay, how about a half a million on your two million claims? So that's the way the process unfolds, and
1: um, sometimes you have to stick it out. Yeah.
2: With Dr. Marconi, I'm sold. I think we should uh, hire Dr. Carl Guthrie. At yes, yeah. yes, I agree. I don't know, Megan.
3: I think he's the best professor. No offense, Phil Marconi. I've had both of you. <laughs> uh, he, I'm in uh, his semester right now, so right, got to talk him up. Uh,
1: we,
2: we certainly she's do.
1: Already, she's already received grades from us.
2: Yeah, I know. So now yeah, that's right. what it's up to. Yep. <laughs> well, well, if I may speak for Dr. Marconi, we actually spoke about this before, and we would love to have you back on in the future. Oh, sure. Would you be willing to do so? Would you commit yes. to us now? Not a date, but commit to being back on, Music Biz Winter or more? Absolutely. I'm heavily vested in this school. <laughs> <laughs> there we, go. we have to have him and, back because this is great sure, stuff. And we could talk to you for yeah. about another 93 minutes. That's, that's before.
0: why I said you have five hours. And, yeah, yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah. So course. we do need to wrap up <laughs> yes. right now. So this is the end of this week's edition of Music Biz 101 and More with... Me.
1: <laughs> and next week we have as our guest, George Dassinger, prominent PR person... In industry, and I think you'll get uh, some valuable information out of uh, um, George as well.
2: Yes, and we're looking forward to uh, seeing you during the week. Please visit our website, musicbiz101wp.com. Uh, if you have questions about marketing and PR, you can, e- uh, you can tweet them to us all week long at musicbiz101wp. We'll be back next week, Wednesday night, 8 p.m. East Coast time on... Brave New Radio WP 88.7 for Carl Guthrie, Megan Johnson, Dr. Steve Marconi and Carl Guthrie's entertainment awesome law class for Connor Morrison yeah. and Philip Gorahovsky. I am Professor Dave Phil. We bid you an adios.